the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Personal Computing podcast. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, David, Mr. Beetle himself. Hello. How's it going, David? Good. I had to think about that for a minute, because when you first said that, I'm thinking <laughs> Beatles. Beatles. That sounds <laughs> Like the band. <laughs> I've been really enjoying the Beatle a lot, too, except for this week. We've had, like, the pollen explosion here in the greater oh, yeah. Atlanta area. So I haven't been putting the top down at all. Oh, yeah. You'd have a whole whole floor full, seat full of that stuff, huh? Well, and for the last three days in a row, when I've gotten home, I've taken the hose and, like, and like spent 10 minutes or so on it, like, really seriously hardcore rinsing the car all the way down to get it off. And then by the time, you know, the day goes through, I mean, literally, it's, like, covered in it. So it's really yeah, bad here. Uh, one one year in the eighties, when I had to go back to Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is yeah. near Augusta, which is near near uh, well, yeah, which is on like the other side of the state, I think, on yep. the top edge of the state. It's like and two little less than two hours from here. I it was it was springtime, and I had a yellow nineteen seventy three Super Beetle, but I could still see the yellow pollen on it. Yeah, <laughs> that's how bad it was. I thought, wow. Yeah, because we didn't. I didn't experience this in North Florida, where I'm from. So it's like somebody spilled sulfur powder all over the car. And and just by the way, um, yeah, I went to training at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and my wife, and that's where we met. Yeah, I but yeah, but I told but you that you, before, right? You didn't go to Brems Barracks. No, you, you stayed in the Hollywood area. <laughs> oh, we the talked about it before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You stayed in the area with air conditioning. I was in those old Quonson hut type things where we had huge electric fans that wow that cooled down an entire row of bunk beds that's down dumb. a big long hallway. Well, hey, it built character, right? That's that's what it was supposed to do. And it and it did, I guess. <laughs> so we have Still. a we have a new segment. Yes. Which one was it again? <laughs> <laughs> what have you done old, quote unquote, lately? What have I done old? Well, you tell you started out. You tell us what you've done old. Oh well, I've been getting. I was on a kick. I was telling you about this earlier. So I, um, I'm a Columbo fan, and I, I never was as a kid. I don't, you know, maybe most kids weren't when it was airing originally. And then even in repeats, I was just kind of like, eh, it didn't really intrigue me. But then at some point, I guess I think it was when Netflix came out. No, because I bought the first season anyway. So I watched the very first season of Columbo, and then I was like, wow, I really like this show. And, uh, and I've watched all of them, all the original run. I think it went through like 76 or something like that. And then I knew that later on they made some Columbo movies and stuff. And then, you know, I, my assumption probably was that eh, they're probably not very good. <laughs> right. And yeah. so so I went to Barnes and Noble recently and they they've got a bunch of their television DVDs and stuff on sale for pretty good deals. That match or beat Amazon, by the way. So anybody interested? So I bought the the oldest one, the 1989, and that turns out to be, I guess, when he came back and started doing specials. And um, and actually, they're really good. So I've now bought the 89, 90, 91, 93, and I just bought the last set, 94 to 2003. And so I've been on a roll watching all these. Like this set, here's 10 hours. But I've been watching like half of one every night, sort of a thing. 
Yeah, if they, had, if they brought back the same writers or most of the same writers, that then I can see how the the newer ones, that you know, the '80s and '90s yeah. and stuff, would be just as good. Because I I caught Columbo recently on Netflix, and I watched through the first seven or eight seasons that they had on there. And for them, you know, the seasons in the later years were like two per season because they mixed it with that. Uh, oh, they, they did like a detective. The movie. Wednesday night thing, yeah, with um. Yeah, Millen and like Wife that. and the Cloud. Yes. And all those. So they had fewer Columbo ones. But yeah, when I was younger, I mean, I knew they existed. I think my parents watched it, but I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that intro. That whistling, that, that Western style whistling intro. So, so I would highly recommend the 89 and 90. And yes, it's, you know, it's, it's from 89 and 90. So there's some of that 80s feel about it, which, you know, whether you like that or not. But basically just the... Both the 89 and 90 set, I would highly recommend. They're absolutely great. Real good writing, consistent, just like the old Columbo, but he's older. The 91, the 93, um, overall good. The last two episodes, I didn't really care for too much, and they tried to change around the format. And um, anyway, and then this one, I just started the 94 one, so... But he was a great actor. Anyway, so that's what I've been doing that. Oh, and I wanted to mention, I put this in our notes, is... um. I recently on eBay just noticed this old Time magazine from February 20th, 1978, and it's called The Computer Society, a special section. So again, it's February 78, and it's got a picture of like people with computer terminals and electronic digital watches and calculators and chips as their heads. I would have been in heaven back then if I and, was like in a room full of that stuff. And C-3PO. Watches and... Of course. Yeah, behind it. So so it intrigued me to see what would they what be writing about in 78. And they basically, it starts it, off, it just talks about the age of miracle chips. So, you know, microprocessors. And look, they talk about living in the future in a push-button society. And they have a picture of a, of a TRS-80 Model 1 system and the Mattel football game. And then just stuff like that. Oh, yeah, the, the handheld football games and stuff. Those are great. Stuff that's going and on. Said, C-3PO was in there. See, nothing says yeah, on the, cover. the future when, uh, unless you use a robot from a galaxy a long time ago. Yeah. But, I mean, it's pretty interesting to see just how, you know, they think it's going to change society, how much it really has since then. Um, it's even got a little thing here about, and if you're me and you remember, remember when uh, UPC codes and, like, checking out the grocery store when that was newfangled? Yes. Oh, what's that red light? Oh, it hurts my eyes. Yeah, so they've got a little thing about that. And I remember that with my mother going to the store. I, I want to say that. I first saw it earlier than 78, though, but I guess it was still pretty new. I remember they advertised that you could just roll your cart through and it would scan with the laser light everything in your cart. Oh, I remember that. Back. That was supposed to be the future. But that never came to fruition. And even though we have like RFID tags that can do that now, we still don't have that. You're still running past a scanner. Yeah. You know, every item one at a time. Yeah, and the RFID thing, that's been, what? Geez, they've been talking about that for like seven, eight years. And I think it's just not price effective or cost effective. You well, know, the dude put that on every too. single item. Yeah, but can the thing is, can the computer or whatever scans it be selective enough to identify a cart full of RFID tags that are, you know, chatting back? Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of chatter. <laughs> so what retro-related something or well, another you've been doing. I, I have something, but but I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because you talked about Columbo 
And then you didn't say, oh, and one more thing before you started <laughs> oh, yeah. with Time Magazine. Just one yeah, more uh, thing, no, man. Just one more thing. <laughs> uh, well, me, I, um, I, I'm a fan of micro, you know, mini microprocessor type devices. And um, I have something called a Raspberry Pi, which is a little more than just a microprocessor device, but it's on the same size and scale. It's about the size of a cigarette pack. But it's actually a mini computer and I think I bought one of the first Raspberry Pi computers that they delivered years ago. But recently they came out with a newer version that's faster and can do a lot more and will, believe it or not, run Windows 10 in the near future. Really? And Microsoft, yeah, they, they're going to have an ARM uh, chipset version of Windows 10, which should run on the new Raspberry Pi version 2. Anyway, I bought the Raspberry Pi version 2. It basically runs Linux. You install an operating system on an SD card, you stick it in there, you hook it up to a TV with an HDMI input or a composite input, and you can hook up a keyboard or mouse to its USB ports, and you have a running Linux computer. But I found out recently that they make a program called ADT Pro, which is used to transfer disk images to and from an Apple II. Well, they make a version of ADT Pro that runs on the Raspberry Pi, so I'm anxious to try that out because it's just a small computer and you can run it without uh, a screen and stuff if you really needed to. So it can boot up, say, into ADT Pro, you hook it up, serial connection to an Apple and start booting disks off of it, you know, off of a something that fits in a tiny box. That's so cool. One of these days I'll have time to uh, actually work on that. I'm, in fact, you probably heard me shaking it around. Um, it's... It's here. It's in a box. It's unopened. And you know, you could probably get one too. They they have them at. Uh, they probably have them at Fry's. You have a Fry's near I'll you. Take I a, yeah, at, I do. I bought mine at Micro Center. We have uh, Micro Center too. Thirty five dollars. But even so, as is, it is a nice, tiny Linux compatible computer that well, will do stuff. Take a look at um the link I just added. Have you heard about this? The compute stick. I've heard yeah, of it. I that, haven't seen any details on it yet. Well, apparently it hasn't been released yet. So it's it's by Intel, and it's it's a lot like um, you know, like the little USB fob little drives that you can you know plug into any TV. And it's like a smart TV, but in this case, it's Tiny. a whole it's a whole computer. So that's kind of interesting. So obviously, oh, we'll I be seeing see. a lot okay. more of this kind of stuff. So this isn't really retro, but could be another cheap platform to do retro related things with. So this is obviously Intel-based, so it says here, pre-installed with Windows 8.1 or Linux. Oh, that'll be even better than the Raspberry Pi. It probably costs <laughs> more. But, um, I bet you it'll that, cost more, though. Yeah. Oh, it plugs into an HDMI. Yeah. So just it like my... It gets um, its power off of it. Yeah, you know, my Amazon device, Fire Stick. You know, it's specifically... Yeah. You can plug it in an ATV, and now it makes it a smart TV. Got one of those, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, all right. Well, there's links in the show notes for that. So that'll be interesting to see how that develops. Let me get back to our notes here. I was having fun looking at all the details of that computer. I'm going to have to keep that in mind. Well, there's two big events. Yes. Who wants to go first? Coming up. Well, I, you'd actually had it in the other order, but I changed it because I thought since VCF East is first, coming oh, up that's first, right. it probably made sense I, uh, I will be at the Vintage Computer Festival East for my second year in a row, which means now I have to pay a vendor fee. Um, oh, they give it to you first, free the first time? First time. Oh. Yes. So last year I didn't have to pay. It's not a whole lot. They just they want 20 bucks out of me, so I, no big deal. That's an um, outrage. 
Uh, yeah, I was like, <laughs> 20 bucks. <laughs> I was told 1999. Uh, anyway. So and so I that's only, that's a there. week from tomorrow. Yes. It, yes. Um, so I still have to get all of my kit together, but I will be um, displaying a Commodore Amiga 2000, the one that I got signed last year by Dave Haney. And um, oh, who's the other guy? Oh, um, and one of those guys Fink is going to be there, right? Uh, Dave Haney usually shows up, and so does um, oh, who's the other guy who did the Commodore 128? Um, why am I forgetting these names all of a sudden? Must be uh, it happens. Um, um, wow! So I'm looking. Bill Hurd. Bill Hurd. Bill Hurd. Yeah, so he's doing something. Alan there. Finkel. He Alan Finkel did the software stuff for the Amiga. Dave Haney did the design for the Amiga. And that's why I had. That's why I didn't have Bill Hurd sign the Amiga when I had it there last year. Um, actually, all I, all I did is I took the front cover off because I actually was displaying a TI ninety nine setup. But I knew they were going to be there, and if they were going to come around, I was going to have them sign the front bezel of my Amiga two thousand. So I'll be taking that Amiga out there, and I'll be demonstrating the uh, New Tech Video Toaster system. That was the um, non. It was the linear, uh, basically desktop editing. Um, it's like a, a mini video studio. Yeah. You know, it replaced like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of studio components in, in one box with four video inputs, integrated character generator and graphic generator for overlays. And it also had uh, Lightwave 3D, which allowed you to make 3D graphics that you could superimpose or, or animate on top of your video. So there's a, if you go to it, the sessions page, there's like ton of stuff going on there yes and there's going to be another person with a uh video toaster also um it's like <laughs> as I, I tell everybody it's like going to the show and somebody's wearing the same dress you are yeah um but that's okay i think he actually has us together i didn't verify the the seating but um i think he has both of us together which will be fine because i got to contact that person and see if we can't come up with like a dual demo you know to show off this stuff um, dual. I'm trying. I'm looking to see if not, I can. Not a dual, as in D U E L. D U A L. But yeah, the the seating, the arrangements already done. I I'm in the new building this year because I, I guess because I'm paying, and um, has a nice clean floor and stuff. Doesn't doesn't look like an old army barracks, although I am probably still used to that by now. But I'm really looking forward to it. I just got to make sure all my kit is together. And just in case, I'll have a spare exhibit that I'll bring as a backup just yeah. in case the magic smoke decides to leave my Amiga. Hey, someone's going to have Commodores on the internet there. Oh, yeah. And um, let's see. They're also going to do, do synthesizers. Uh, they're bringing an analog computer in. Uh, a big, large, I think it was from MIT, a big analog computer. Last year they had the, uh, I always get it wrong. Is it the, is it, um, the ENIAC? No. Is it Unisys? Some big, ma you know, massive computing system they had there last year. This year they're going to have oh. an analog computer system. Yeah, and, the, and a bunch of PDPs. And... Oh, and oh, I see the other guy gonna... is uh, Matt Pateray, I think, from Ohio's doing the that Megatron. I think that's the other name. The I other saw video toaster, yeah. Yeah. So and then someone's going to gonna have 30 years of Commodore Amiga <laughs> display. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. And Commodore's on the internet, man. I tell you, this is the show is like really big now. Yeah, they had a hard time arranging everybody. Um, they they might be packed in slightly 
tight, but they'll still do the same um, vendor. Not, well, the used parts or used equipment um, vending room, the sales room. You can't sell anything at your table, but if you have stuff to sell, you can stick it in this big room where it's just mixed up yeah. with everything. And you have a price sheet with a sticker on indicating your items. And then somebody kind of runs the, uh, the 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 counter there, and you know people look around, they see stuff, and they'll go up and say, "Well, how much is this?" It has like the letter I sticker on it, and they'll look in his list. Here's I. He wants X amount, and you know they can buy it. And then fifteen percent of those sales goes to the vent, goes to the, the, the show. And then you get the rest in cash. Hmm. So people have paid for their stuff, have paid for their trips, just selling stuff. And I, I'm going to take some of the stuff I didn't sell last year, and I have a, a short list of things I'm going to sell this year. I'd love to get my TRS-80 Model 3 that I have in my garage running and probably sell that because I have the Model 4, and I'm happy enough with that. Oh, you got to promote the show. <laughs> Are no, you going to promote the show? I can. I'll, I'll be there as Vintage Volts. But I will promote the show too. I, I hope so. Problems. In fact, we got to design business cards now. Okay. Just we play it. Just play it on the loudspeaker the whole time. Well, <laughs> you know, one thing I do want to try to do, and I don't know if I'll be able to get it done, but it might be worth a shot, is if I can get the composite output of the video toaster stuff um, streaming right. I'd like to stream the output on the internet somewhere. Hmm. Uh, if I can, uh, it's just the hardest part is getting the composite to an input of something that won't eat up my data on on my mobile solution. I don't have a, um, although I can turn on like a hotspot uh, if I wanted to. I think I'm limited to a gigabyte and I could probably use that up in a couple hours of streaming video. Oh, yeah. Easily. So only uh, two weeks later. You're going to be at another show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Actually, three weeks later, I'll be at another show. I'll be at the Kutztown Antique Radio Show. Oh, that'd be cool. We have to talk about that on, a, on our next, on our a show after that, I guess. Yes. But but only two weeks later than the Vintage Computer Festival East 10, by the way, is the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 3.0, which is, uh, oh yeah, so the one you're going to is in Wall, New Jersey, which is... Yes. Um, what it's like 45 minutes outside it's of the uh, Newark info age museum. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of on, it's kind of South of what is it? Uh, red bank, red, red hook. And I have been twice and it's been a while though. So I, I don't remember. I thought I always thought it was like wall ta township, but it is wall township. Yeah. Now it's just called wall. So, well, know. they call it wall. I believe, I believe it is actually wall township. Um, it's kind of close to the coast, isn't it? It's very close to the coast. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. And um, so anyway, so just two weeks later, so that's a three-day show. And so it actually starts on Friday. The one in my area, which is close to where I live, north of Atlanta proper, Roswell, Georgia, but the Atlanta area is uh, on Saturday and Sunday, May 2nd and May 3rd. And so that's the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 3. And let's take a look at, see how much it's got going just, just yet, because that's coming up pretty quick too. So as far as sessions, see, they haven't done a whole lot to really advertise or promote this, especially this year. But so, so far they just have like the soldering sessions going on. We're no promoting speakers. it here. Anybody yeah, listen to this, the day of the release, you got, was it three weeks to go? Yeah. So, so 
they, they have all the time, all day running like um, adults and children re- little soldering kits and all, which is a lot of fun. And then exhibits. Let's see how many exhibits are going now. There's uh, um, Kyle Owen, who's who will be at your show. He's also doing the same one here because he lives in Alabama, so he lives in this area. And then John from uh, James and John Retro Matt Cass is doing 20 Years of Marathon. I won't name them all. Oh, off. okay. But um, some Radio Shack stuff and Tic-Tac-Toe Machine. Let's see. Doom Land Party. Looks like there's a couple more new people in here. Ma- Macintosh Multiplayer Gaming. Look, another person's doing that. That's pretty neat. Spectre from 1990. How about that? A second Mac gamer. Happy 40th Altair. Oh, did you see that? You're going to have an Altair there, too. Oh, yeah, and that's good, because it is the fourth anniversary of the Altair. So, and then, yeah, I think he says he'll also have, oh, the MSI 8080, which is the first clone considered. Yeah, the one with the big colorful switches. Yeah. Yeah, I think arguably it was a nicer looking machine than the first one. Oh, we're going to have a Newton at the East one. So our next show, just to mention it, is going to be... I guess I'll be right after, so you'll be able to talk about about it. Yes, I should, we should be able to discuss uh, everything that I remember from the show. Uh, I'll kind of be behind my table most of the time, and I'll get a few chances. Yeah, if I'm paired up with the other guy with the uh, video toaster, that would yeah. be great because then we can you know tag team each other to you know work the sets, and then yeah, and then while the other one goes and looks around and reminisces. That's the good thing about a busy show is, of course, it's busy and you get lots of people look at your stuff and talk to. The bad thing is, yeah, you know, leaving your area is hard. Yep. So oh, it'll, okay. it'll still be fun. I, I, I'm actually anxious to look at the Fairlight CMI at the uh, East show because that is the first um, digitizing or commercially available digitizing synthesizer. And it was used by a lot of early 80s. It, it, it's kind of what sparked 80s music. Mm-hmm. Um, it was used a lot by um, uh, who used it. Art of Noise used it. There's a lot of actual. Uh, I even started a list once as I found it. I just don't know where I saved my list. Probably on a USB drive somewhere. But there's a lot of artists in the early to mid 80s that used the CMI, the Fairlight CMI, uh, whether they rented it in a studio or something, because it was very powerful. It did digitize recording. You could draw waveforms and make your own sound envelopes and, and have all sorts of interesting computerized sounds. Hmm. Well, so we'll have to do, we'll have to dedicate a good portion, you know, at least 10 minutes or so. And uh, for you to tell us about it and then I'll interview you. I'll have to take notes. <laughs> yes. I'll ask you probing questions. I'll, I'll make wear sure my we double talk brimmed it. hat and I'll, I'll go from uh, co-host to, you know, interviewee or guest i'll go from co-host to guest and then i'll switch my hat back tell everyone i said hi (laughs) i will i will hopefully uh uh there'll be a lot of uh cool stuff there right about i just have to make sure i bring something to write it down because if it's anything like last year i had a hard time just remembering half the stuff weekly i was so overwhelmed by all the interests that were, were there and and just the people, you know, you talk to everybody and you, you never met yeah. them, but you all have the same thoughts. And I've met some, you know, I've talked to some people who were there just to see the show. Right. And oh, yeah. you get some great ideas, young and old, you get some great ideas off of these shows. You know, some, you know, somebody came and told me 
they looked at my TI stuff. They told me everything about the synthesizer, and this person had to be no more than about 18 years old. Hmm. Well, you're going to – did you meet Kyle Owen, who was from this area last time? I – you know, me and names uh, don't – Well, well, he's, so he was together. part of the, the group from here. So he's going to be doing a PDP. He'll have a PDP uh you know, exhibit. So make sure meet him and talk to him. So he, I know, just graduated university. Yeah, I think this year I'll take more cards and take down some more names. I think he's like so he's around twenty two, maybe twenty three now or so. So fairly young guy, and he's he's a you know just a a genius, I'd say, engineer. And he's he's gotten a hold of the, a bunch of these really old S one hundred machines and PDPs and restored them. And he just you know stuff to me that would be crazy. I could never do. No, actually, I. Th- yeah, I've seen a few of those. I remember a few of those now. Because yeah, last year, did you couldn't... meet the little posse that came up from the Atlanta Historical Computing Society? Did you talk to any of them or no? Uh, There's like four guys that went. Give me some names. I might. Um, well, Brad. Um... Yes. Okay. Brad okay. sounds familiar. I forget the last name. Brad Arnold? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going blank too for a minute. Yeah. And yes. then, and yes, then Kyle Owen him. and Flash Corliss, I yes. think. Yeah, he drove. And I didn't. Yeah, they all came together as one group. Yeah, Uh, and I think they even invited me down to southeast of it. It was just short notice. Yeah, and 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 part of it is just the distance. Uh, I just don't know if I'll be able to take time off work to be able to go the distance to drive down to. You know, I wouldn't mind driving down to a warmer place. You got to go the distance. I got to go the distance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, and plus they're only two weeks outside of each other, which I kind of think isn't a good plan. But anyway. (laughs) <laughs> and we'll see that maybe they can fight it out and i mean see. you know it's probably easy to it's probably safe to assume that not very many people would necessarily go to both shows anyway you know from the two different regions but i don't know i probably would have wanted to place them at least a month apart or so you yeah know, and talk, certainly don't schedule it anywhere within a month of kansas fest yeah which that's what july yeah I'm not saying that East should move theirs or Southeast should move theirs. But if they were like six months apart from each other, yeah, that might be better. A lot more. Anyway, let's see what we're done with our show now, right? We, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> a wrap. Good work, everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get moving. I think we have a show to do somewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, listener appreciation for this week. Uh, well, the mailbag is has one thing in it. Uh, well, wait, wait, that's a piece of fuzz. Um, <laughs> We have one email that was sent to us by um, Hamilton Davies and told us about something that was Commodore 64 related, but we're going to talk about that later in the podcast during the Commodore 64 section. So that's basically it for listener appreciation right now, but we will reserve time later in this episode to continue with that. I was just checking the email and I see that one. (laughs) Very timely. Yes. Nice little picture attachment to it also. So anyway, let's get started here. Um, well, everybody remembers their first computer almost as much as they remember their first car, right? Um, or I even their so. first girlfriend or boyfriend. And some people remember how much work it took on their part to acquire any of those things. Um, well, you don't give flowers to a computer, but uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, today we talk about two systems that are, well, deeply rooted in my soul. Uh, personally, because they represent the first two computers I have called my own, the Commodore VIC-20 and the Commodore 64. You only get one. I only get one. I'll pick the VIC-20. 
Yeah, that now, was your first one, you, right? You have a personal historic interest in the 64 also. So yeah, yeah, you, you can go with that. And so well, would it be uh, safe to say too, that they're, they're kind of, I mean, they're a lot alike. They are. I mean, obviously there's, there's a, there's a kindred spirit. I mean, the, the Commodore 64 is sort of the Vic 20 fully realized. Yes. It's when like, you say? The, it's like going from the ZX80 to ZX81 with the Sinclair. It's sort of like in the Macintosh world, you know, I, I think we were talking about it recently, you know, I think yeah, the original Mac, it didn't really become fully realized until the Mac plus came out. Yeah. Like, like two years later. So he beefs up enhanced. So everybody please bear with us. If this episode has more of a personal narrative than some of our other shows, because there's some passion in this, in some of these items. Talk and, about yourselves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Getting all verklempt. <laughs> all right. Um, I'll start out first with the Commodore Vic-20. Um, we talked about the pet before, uh, the Commodore pet as one of the, um, the early, the Trinity computers. Well, the next evolution from the pet series and also based on the same microprocessor as the pet 6502 is the Vic-20. It was designed to leverage the features of a custom, uh, MOS 6560 video interface chip or Vic which then became the basis for the name VIC-20. Um, the computer was made by Commodore under a directive from Jack Tremiel, um, the ruthless and <laughs> ruth. No, I would say ruthless, but yeah, he, he's, he is tough. A really, he's a tough, tough businessman. Yes. Uh, very shrewd. And he wanted to beat the Japanese to what he saw foresaw was a competitive home computer market. Mm-hmm. The guy was smart too. Um, the prototype for the VIC-20 was demoed at the 1980 Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, two design attempts within Commodore led to its creation. Uh, the first design attempt, attempt was Chuck Peddle and Bill Seiler. Chuck Peddle was the one who designed the 6502 microprocessor. Um, and he also had, a, had his hands in on the Commodore PET, too. And they designed something called the Toy Computer, T-O-I, which stands for the Other Intellect. Hmm. So, in that same naming convention as as the personal electronic transactor for the pet, yeah, yeah TOI, and it was based off of an expensive to support eighty column video chip called the MOS sixty five sixty four, and expensive support means it used expensive RAM components for for um you know to to maintain the screen memory and all that stuff, and it was just it became pricey, and of course Jack Tramiel doesn't want much expense. Uh, another gentleman named Bob Yanis, and I, I may have gotten his name wrong. Um, Bob Yanis, by the way, is famous for creating synthesizer components, and he also created something for the Commodore 64. I'm not going to take your uh, spark on that one, David, but um, Bob Yanis is famous in the mu- music synthesizer industry, plus he has very good electronics knowledge. He created something called the MicroPet at home using the, the 6560 chip video chip, the, the Vic chip. And then when Tramiel saw it and its reduced manufacturing cost, he decided right away and ordered the MicroPet design to mass production. So that's what eventually became worked into the Commodore Vic-20. So was there ever an actual MicroPet for sale or that just became the Vic-20? I think it became the Vic-20. Okay. He, he built it at home with parts, I guess. Maybe he sourced from work or sourced from wherever, but you know, he had something together to show and because it used cheaper, the, the Vic chip actually uses uh, cheaper memory, yeah. um, 
at so actually no it doesn't use cheap which one was cheaper one's more expensive we talked about this before in another show um static ram and dynamic ram oh and i think i think the vic the vic chip used um static ram i forget which one is i think static ram was actually more expensive but commodore was sitting on a whole bunch of it that's why they were mm-hmm. sitting on tons of it, so they used what they had in stock. So okay. in the long run, they it, it effectively was cheaper, so they didn't buy other memory and still sit on this stuff in, in, in stock. Anyway, um, the VIC-20 was one of the first, if not the first, computer to incorporate full user-friendliness <laughs> at a $299 price point. And I'm defining that as it has an open architecture shortly after the computer came out that you can buy the a special manual for it that gave you everything schematics this that whatever everything was detailed the engineers did a wonderful job with the uh, uh, programmer's guide for the vic 20 so it was a fully open architecture um it also had full-size keyboards or keyboards you had real keys and yeah, uh, very nice something about the keys i want to mention this see this is the sound effects part of the show a lot of people remember um because the Commodore VIC-20 kind of looked like the Commodore 64. Well, mm-hmm. let's, let's put it this way. Commodore 64 looked like the VIC-20. Um, and they have a lot of these keys that sound like that. You know, kind of a muted sound. But, let me get it here. Sorry for all the noise, but the earliest VIC-20s had a slightly cheaper sounding keyboard. And it had more of a clacky sound to it. Huh. Yeah. My, my very first computer was... You know, imagine typing like this the whole time. That's that's what I dealt with. Did it have a different uh, travel? It has about the same travel, but the shape is a little different. Um, the earlier keys had more of a squared top uh-huh. that were flat, um, and then they sloped on all four sides. They, you know, they sloped down and, and wider slightly. And the Commodore 64 keys kind of had a rounded, indented top, but so did the later VIC 20s. Had that. You know, it had more of a, a, a better finger feel as your fingers rested on the keys. Okay. Um, but continuing on with, with uh, what made this full user friendliness is that they used retail sales channels. Uh, at first, they sold them in, in um, computer stores that sold the pet. But then you could find them in Kmart, Toys R Us, um, Sears. It, retail yeah. markets yeah. got them right away. Um, and the, it also supported a few standard or a couple standards. One was RS-232 connectivity for, you know, connecting modems and stuff and, or other true RS-232 serial communications. And it also supported the IEEE uh, form of communications. And that's what was used for uh, communicating to disk drives. And although they didn't implement it directly, you could get stuff if a third-party company made it to interface to like older IEEE disk drives or any other IEEE type uh, device that was used in the older, I guess S100 used IEEE and in some you probably get boards that supported that. It was a it was a connectivity standard, but the VIC-20 supported that. Hmm. And what did you get for two ninety nine? Well, you actually got quite a bit. Um, at least back in nineteen eighty. When did I get mine? I have mine here. I still have, it says a sticker on the back. Purchase date 10-22-1981. Warranty expiration date 1-22-1982. Um, I got means I can take it apart now. Um, it came with 5K of RAM, which was more odd. than the 4K. It, it was odd, but it was more 
but it's also more than the 4K that other computers came with at the uh -huh. time. So it had 25% more memory. Um, That's fine. But only 3,853 bytes were usable in BASIC. Uh, it's because of the way the memory map works. But if you ever wanted to know how that worked, it was an open architecture. You knew that right away by looking at the books. If you wanted to do more than just program it to say, hello world, um, you knew why it was 5K. But it was also expandable to 40K, um, but only 28K was available for BASIC. So the remaining RAM could be used if you wrote assembly programs and wanted to put them into like a higher memory or something. Um, if you wanted to get that complicated with VIC-20, you could. The processor was a 6502 microprocessor, just like in the PET. It ran at approximately 1 megahertz. Um, some of the variations are that they had a PAL and NTSC version for the because they sold them in Europe and in Japan, and they have different television standards. And the, the slightly altered CPU speeds between the two versions uh, were based on the video timing between PAL and NTSC. So the PAL version actually ran a little bit faster than one, one megahertz. I think it was like 1.04 something for NTSC and like 1.1 something for PAL. Uh, it was just a wee bit faster, but for all practical purposes, it was a one megahertz system. It also had um, Atari-compatible joystick port, which also supported Atari paddles. They came in pairs, and it also supported light pens because it had light pen trigger input. It had composite video and audio out, so you could hook it up to uh, composite input and TV, and they also gave you an external RF modulator so you can hook it up through the television tuner. It came with an expansion port, which was used for game cartridges, and there's quite a few of those that were made. Or you can get a memory expansion. You had one slot. You can use it for either or, but third-party companies came with slot adapters that gave you more slots that if you bought cheap memory cards you can actually stack them and increase the memory or you can put them in certain orders so that maybe a game cartridge resides in one part of memory but your expansion memory resides in another one and you would like this type of command to launch the game in another memory bank so there's different ways that you can work it um, but it did have an expansion port so you weren't stuck with what just came in the box it also had a specialized cassette drive port. They had their own standard, um, unlike some other computers at the time that were nice enough to supply you with just, you know, you get a cable, but then you hook up any standard cassette player recorder to it. This one, you had to buy their own um, cassette player. It was special. But the good thing about that is they were pre-configured at the factory for audio levels, so they worked the first time. You didn't have to adjust volume controls. Plus, it also had, and this is part of the, the, uh, the open architecture, it had a user port. Um, it was a smaller port. It was about half the size of a, uh, the expansion port, but it was commonly used for a modem connection. This is where your RS-232 stuff came through, but it was an edge card slot. So if somebody bought a, an edge card experimenters board, they can plug it into this and they can wire up uh, their own circuitry with uh, common, what they call TTL logic, uh, digital logic at the time, as if you dared to try to do that yourself, you could do that. What so, like, what like, um, off the shelf stuff, could you buy to connect to that? Anything? Well, you know, I'd have to probably page through an old magazine to see all this stuff, but typically it was a modem and that's mostly what it ended up being used for. Um, I had 
you know, the, the Commodore 64 also has the same user port. Yeah. And um, the I head had, slot. But the modem would go on the on the other one, wouldn't it? The well, no. The user port is the port that. Uh, oh, that's the RS two thirty two. Yes. That oh, okay. RS two thirty two capable. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's the same kind of user port, I believe, that the Commodore sixty four had. And yeah. I'm looking at both systems now. Um, yeah, because you can use, say, the Vic modem that you bought for the Vic twenty and use it in the Commodore sixty four. Well, I feel bad. Yes. I don't have a Commodore sixty four sitting here by me. I, I got a cover. I should go get one. <laughs> I've got a couple, you know. Yeah. <laughs> don't have a Vic twenty though. But anyway, I I interrupt. I have two Vic twenties, but the other one. Is the newer style, and I'll, I'll get into the differences a, a wee bit later. How about I got a C sixteen? Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> Just because it's black. I well, I have a I have the uh, plus four, uh, but yeah. I, I'd like to have a C sixteen. I should have bought it when I first saw one in Sears back in nineteen eighty five, but they wanted one hundred and fifty bucks for it, and it wasn't compatible to my Commodore sixty four. So. Yeah. Anyway. The VIC-20, well, actually, the VIC-20, the biggest thing about the VIC-20 was its VIC chip because the computer was built around marketing that chip. So the VIC chip had a set of features which were uh, very powerful for the day. We're talking 1980-ish, 81. Um, it supported 16 colors, uh, but not independently for every pixel on the screen. Uh, it required a lot of memory to, if they were going to do that, and memory was expensive. They couldn't sell a computer as cheap as they did if they did that. Um, however, to get all 16 colors, you had to go into a special multicolor mode, and that is where you that's only where you got the other eight characters or eight colors. Uh, you, you had eight primary colors, and then you had eight additional ones that can only be used for either the screen background color or as chunky pixels in multicolor mode in the way that it does bit mapping. So you didn't have all 16 colors at once. You had eight colors you can use all the time. The other eight were only worked in certain modes. Um, the screen resolution, well, by today's standard, is very abysmal. It, uh, 176 by 184. In fact, I think icons on our computers are about that resolution, aren't they? And a modern one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which basically meant with eight pixel high and eight pixel wide text characters, that was a character screen of 22 characters wide by 23 lines tall. I guess I yes. didn't realize the VIC-20 was that limited. It, it was. But, you know, as, as a kid with his first computer, it's the greatest thing. Um, the sure. VIC chip also supported, and this is where the paddle part came in, it has two analog to digital converters, so that's why it supported Atari paddles, because those were resistors, those are potentiometers, and you use analog to digital converters to convert the position of the paddle to a number that you can reference in code. It also had DMA, direct memory access, and what that allowed it to do is you could create custom characters. You had, you had a character ROM in the computer, which created the character bitmap. But you can actually point to another point of memory and create your own bitmaps. In fact, that's the only way you could do bitmap graphics on the VIC-20. You didn't just turn on a bitmap screen like the Atari 400 did. You actually had to lay out all the printable characters and then change the memory from the character ROM to your location of memory that you've written code to pre-program. Or you can even load it up from a tape, I guess. And then you switch it into bitmap mode. And then in order to map pixels, 
you had to use this convoluted formula to put it at X and Y position because that formula will calculate which row, which column, which character row in the 8 by 8 grid of the character and which character column, and it would put the dot there. <laughs> it's surprised to get mm -hmm. games at all running on it, but you know I've experimented with that stuff too when I had mine. Um, and it, it seemed like a good idea at the time until later on when I realized, oh, if I would have just spent at least twice as much, I could have got a computer that did bitmap graphics just by saying, go to bitmap mode and put a pixel at, you know, 3 and 24. Yeah. Um, but it, it created, uh, another thing it did too, it made sound. It had three square wave sound generators, and they were, they covered each, I believe, five octaves, and they had a one octave overlap. I mean, uh, they had a th see five octaves. Four octaves would overlap with each other. So overall, you'd have, I think it was two, four more octaves. Unless I'm talking about the Commodore 64 one. This is the one note I forgot to double check. Either way, you got three channel sound, plus you had a noise channel. So it would create this... Uh, fuzzy sound effect it wasn't it wasn't the best sound but at least it was more than one channel so some games you can make music you you can play games with it and have sound it i think it had sound similar to that of an atari 2600 yeah because Atari 2600 had sort of square wave sound and noise and of course <laughs> the light light pen support I mean, if somebody really wanted to, they could buy this Vic chip and interface it with their own hardware and get these features. They would just have to supply their own memory or whatnot. So the chip was the big thing about this computer. And if you want to see the details of this custom chip, there's two great technical write-ups detailing its usage. Now, they're older text documents, and they've been around for quite a while. And I found copies of them archived on a GeoCities site. <laughs> Uh, that's been archived by uh, our favorite Internet Archive location. And it was originally maintained by a longtime fan of the VIC-20. His name is Rick Mellick. And we'll have links in the show notes that show you um, the different features that were... There. One of them details the chip, its memory map, the features it can have, what value you need to program into what memory location to get it to do something. And I think the other one has examples of how you do that. Hmm. So for those of you who are really into the hardware, you can look at these uh, locations and find out exactly what made this chip tick. And let's see, what else do I have about it? We're talking about the amount of memory in the computer. Yeah, five, 5K is odd, um, but... It's, oh, how'd you it, upgrade it? You would put in a memory cartridge. You couldn't upgrade anything on board, although I think people have managed to tear theirs apart and rewire things inside. Mm -hmm. um, but you usually just bought an expansion cartridge either in a – they had a super expander cartridge with an extra 3K of memory that gave you a total of 8. Um, but that super expander cartridge also gave you bitmap graphics commands. So it would manage – copying all those character, you know, all that character data over and keep track of how to put a dot on the screen. 
I wish I had that when I was younger, but it was very expensive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least for a kid. Um, but if you upgraded anything with like an 8K or higher, it would actually shift the memory map around a little bit. Most computers have a memory map. They have memory byte zero to memory byte whatever the highest it can support. And all along those memory addresses, you'll have a certain area which is selected for to keep track of what's on the screen, keep track, track of what color is on the screen, keep track of important information while the computer's running, uh, to keep track of your basic program. Um, almost every computer does that. Uh, VIC-20 did theirs slightly different. They had a memory map when it was left unexpanded, but when you put extra memory in, it actually had to shift starting points for memory to new locations because the VIC chip can only talk to certain areas of the memory. It can't talk to the whole memory map. It can only look at certain spots. So things were shifted around slightly when extra memory was added. And what that meant is if you wrote a program in BASIC and, or even bought a program in BASIC that worked on the unexpanded VIC-20, it would have to, when it puts things on the screen for games, it would have to put it into a certain memory location. Well, that would be invalid anymore with an expanded VIC-20. So when you bought stuff, you would either get two copies of the game or the program, or it would say strictly for an unexpanded VIC or an expanded VIC-20. So you had to kind of watch out for that. But that didn't stop people. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. You, you were going to say something there? Yeah, I say that's, yeah, that is kind of odd. But, you know, you make these sacrifices, I guess. I guess it's considered a consumer sacrifice when you want to pay less for a computer. You're going to have to suffer some limitations. Yeah. And I think they did a fairly good job making it work for people. Uh, because during its heyday in 1982, over a million were sold in just that year alone. And I think that was a record. Which I'm going to talk about the Commodore 64, but yeah, that was the record before the Commodore 64. Yep. Now, they, 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 they got it out there. They tried, of course, that's how Commodore is. Make it as cheap as possible. Make it work. Give people something that works, but will work around some of the weird issues. Um, the, the earlier ones, like the one that I ended up getting in October of 1981, um, they actually had two different power supplies two different versions based on the power supply design. The first power supply design was an AC input, which basically means the it had an external power supply. You plug one end to the wall, and then it has this big box that sits uh, somewhere. And then the other end, there was another cord that went into the side of the computer. Well, the earlier VIC-20s had basically a transformer in there. It took the 120 volts or 220 uh, overseas uh, and converted to 9 volts AC. And you plugged that into the side of the computer. It was just two pins. And, and it plugged in. But inside the computer was the rest of the power supply that created all the computer voltages, the 12 volts, the 5 volts, and stuff like that. Now, the, the drawback to that was because it, was a, it wasn't a modern-day power supply. Uh, it was a power supply called a uh, um, linear power supply. It created massive amounts of heat. And that heat that would, would show up on the top side of the expansion port. Uh, in these earlier VIC-20s, if you, can, if you put your hand inside the expansion port, you'll feel metal. That's where the um, part of the power supply that generates and dissipates heat sits. And in fact, that's how it dissipates heat, by kicking it out of the expansion slot um, without a fan. So it gets really hot. So when you put a cartridge in there and you play it for a while and you pull the cartridge out, it's really hot to touch. Or... 
if you were like me at the time, you put your hand back there accidentally because you wanted to see if you had a cartridge in there and you burned your fingers. Hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, that's the one I have. Um, but then they, they changed the design to something that is also basically used on the Commodore 64. I think it has a different pinout. I don't have one of those VIC-20s available to me, but they, they went to what they call the uh, brick power supply. Basically, just like the external box for the early VIC-20s, the box contained the full power supply. So you plug one in the box into the wall, and then the full power supply was in the brick. And on the other side, you had all your computer voltages, and that plugged into the side of the computer. So all the heat that may have generated would generate in that brick instead of inside the computer. In fact, I'm surprised my VIC-20 still works for all the heat that it's been generating, because I use this thing constantly. Um, but it's, it still works. And that's basically the details of the VIC-20, uh, a summary of the, what the VIC-20 was about. It was a very um, well-targeted price for an early computer. And it's one of the reasons why I got it was because of the price. Uh, I remember my parents told me one day, hey, we're going to look for a computer. I was totally surprised by that. So obviously it was one day in October in 1981. And we went out. And we went to this place called Computers Unlimited. That's where this one was bought. Um, and we and saw... What year was that again? 1981. Okay. In fact, so I it's think been it out a little while. Just a few months. This is oh, actually okay. one of the earlier uh, ones. It was... Um, I think it was released in the U.S. in June, mid-1981. Mid so this one, it was only so many months on the market. So I was guess I was kind of an early adopter of it. But we went to a place called Computers Unlimited. It was a you know computer store. They sold um, they sold apples, a lot of Apple stuff. They also sold the pet. But it was a dedicated computer store, so they were a Commodore Commodore dealer. And I saw the uh, the Apple. I played around with the Apple, but it was very expensive. I played around with the pet. No, that was nice. And I don't recall what led up to it, but because I was a kid in a candy store there. You know, my parents were just trying to find out, you know, what kind of computer they can afford to get. And I, I'm a kid in the candy store looking at all these computers and having fun with them. And then the um, salesman kind of like waved his arm around to the opposite side of the store as if he was pointing to it and casting light on the wall. It was this huge Commodore VIC-20 poster. And I swear it glowed when I looked at it. <laughs> and it was sitting above a well-presented Commodore VIC-20 computer. And it said, color. And huh. I'm like, wow. So I go over there. I start banging away at this thing. And I, I'm, I'm typing up programs. You know, at the time, I really didn't, didn't know much about program, yeah, programming. But I did go to Radio Shack and you know, type on a Model 1 and make it say print hello. So I made this say print hello. And it worked right away. But then I found out I could change the colors of the text. And I could move the cursor around and edit anything on screen. I had full interactive editing. You didn't have to edit line at a time. You can move around on the screen and change whatever you see on the screen and, you know, alter lines, uh, full interactive editing. And I was just tickled by this. This, this is like, this is the thing. And, and 5K of memory, wow, that's 25% more than the other stuff. But my, my parents were one of those people that we better shop around first. So we went to Radio Shack. We looked at the Coco computer, the color computer. It wasn't called the Coco One at the time because that's the only color computer they had. And I looked at that, and I looked at the flashing psychedelic cursor, and I looked at its limited uh, characters and line display. Was it 16 by 24 or something like that? Um, and the price was $100 more, and it 
it Not seemed like it, it, it the the interface the screen it just didn't seem friendly enough so i said i want the vic 20 and they agreed that we should get the vic 20 mm-hmm, yeah. i oh, think boy, they agreed because was, <laughs> that's why they agreed. <laughs> actually actually it wasn't 299 there this is a dealer this is a computer dealer so they always have their markup it was actually 325 ah but <laughs> while we were there we we found out we had to get the uh was it the C2M cassette recorder for it because it used a proprietary cassette recorder? That was another $99. Oh, wow. Um, Ooh, and, and parents it, were like, okay, we're not going out to dinner <laughs> to celebrate now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's see. If I would have bought the color computer, I would probably had to spend $50 for the cable to hook up to the Panasonic cassette recorder I already owned. Um, you know, that was for making mixtapes off of the radio. And in the long run, they they weren't upset. They they thought it was nice because they they even bought the uh, was it the home management the, the home financial management program on f- two cassettes, double sided, one program on each side. Um, so I think we ended up and we've also bought a game. Um, I'm sorry, I'm hitting my microphone there. We bought blackjack game. We bought a game called Raceway, which is like a car driving game. And I think I bought a magazine, which I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. I tried searching for it. I remember there was one type in program in there that I liked. It was called Catch the Bombs. Hmm. And I could not find the magazine name. I thought it was the Transactor, but apparently it wasn't because the Transactor doesn't have that program in it. Um, But I do have the program on cassette. I did type it in. I did save it. I still have that original cassette. Um, So I have the game. Um, but oh, that's pretty neat. It, it's just the experience of it all. My very first computer, I was happy. I got no sleep that night and I don't know what day of the week, uh, October 22nd, 1981 is, but if it wasn't a Friday or Saturday, I probably did not do good in school the next day either. <laughs> October. Let's see. Cause I actually opened up the calendar. Okay. On yeah. My Mac here. Let's see. Can I go to a specific date? 1981. How do I uh, go to date? Okay. So uh, what is it? August what? Uh, October 22nd. Oh, October 22nd. Sorry. October 22nd, 1981, right? Yes. Uh, October 22nd was a Thursday. Okay. So I did not do good <laughs> in school on Friday. I was, probably, I was probably just so anxious to get home and have a long weekend the, with this thing. But we hooked, my parents had an old Sony Trinitron 13 inch color TV. We hooked it up to that. They set me up a nice little table in the, uh, in the basement rec room. Um, and I just, that's where I was planted all that weekend. And probably every night after school for weeks, I was just having so much fun with this. Um, so that that's that's why it's such it's such a, a warming story for me, and that's why I'm you know a lot of soul in this for me. Everybody remembers their first computer. This was mine. I could go on and on with the stories, but you know, we still have a show to do. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We went long this time, way long. So we're splitting the show into two parts. Make sure to check out part two, which has our discussion of the C64 and eBay finds. Mm-hmm.